Welcome to the RNR podcast. This is your host, Jess James. Join me as I highlight discussions and stories of the unafraid and unfiltered. Let's get rowdy. Let's do this. All right, I think we're there. All right. Welcome to Resilient and Rowdy. This is your host, Jess, and I've got a new guest today, Michelle Black. Um, she is a gold star widow and just an incredibly strong woman. Just, I'm, I'm blown away. So this is Michelle. Hey, Michelle. Hi. <laughs> nice to meet you. Nice to meet you too. Thanks for having <sighs> me on. Yeah, of course. Um, and thank you so much for just sending me a copy of your books and, and also just thank you for, for being you. I think this is really nice to have someone just speaking their truth and sharing it and trying to get justice. Like I'm all about that, that that's what really caught my eye about you. And, you know, I personally never thought I would hear AFRICOM again. So, um, you know, here we are. So I guess, tell us a little bit about you and kind of what brought you, brought you here. Um, so I'm a gold star widow. My husband was a, um, green beret. And he was killed in the Niger ambush in 2017, in which four um, of his teammates were killed, four American soldiers were killed. And um, we heard it all across the news. It was a big national story. And um, there was the Trump phone call with the widow. And that's what everyone remembers, where there was a big spat. Um, And so I I received a phone call as well, because that's what everybody asked me. Did you receive one? Yes, there wasn't a fight between us, but, you know, different phone call. So, um, yeah, that's that's me. (laughs) And uh, yeah, my husband and I were married for 12 years. We have two boys. They were nine and 11 then. They are 13 and 14 now. And um, life's been a roller coaster. So, yeah. yeah. I mean, I'm so sorry for your loss, but I'm just blown away at your strength and just the way you carry yourself. Like, that's, oh, like, I love that. I need that. Um, <laughs> but I mean, I don't even know where to start, <laughs> really, because who, you were never planning to have that call. You, you know, I read in your book that you, I mean, 12 years married and you were hoping to, you know, die old together. And for all of those moments that, you know, our heart really yearns for and for you to have that taken away, but in such a, such a harsh way, like the fact that you had to speak out to get that truth, to get your husband that justice. Um, I mean, can you tell us a little bit about how you were feeling during the time that the, I guess, like, like after, was it after the, his burial that you found out about everything or like, when, when did these things occur in the lineup? Like, really, there was, there was like a six month, month. It, I mean, it was a long time that everything kind of unfolded. Um, obviously, military investigations are not fast. Um, and, and I thought that that's a good thing, right? Because they're going to do a good job. The longer they take, the more they're going to really pick everything apart and, and bring me the truth. Um, but it was just 
it was crazy. So we, October 4th is when the incident occurred. And um, within the first week, I had a, um, the third group commander, third group is out of special forces, uh, special forces out of Bragg um, in Fayetteville, North Carolina. So the third group commander um, came to me, he's a colonel, and during the incident, he was actually in Germany commanding um, the forces on the ground. So he was at my house about a week afterwards and just says, hey, they were on a routine patrol. We're not sure what happened. Um, we'll let you know as more details come in. Well, over the course of the next six months, I find out not only was this commanding um, uh, colonel um, part of VTCs, so video teleconferences with the teams that were planning it, he knew it wasn't a routine patrol. He was part of the approvals process for it. He knew that they were going after a, after a high value target, which was an ISIS, um, kind of the leader of ISIS on the ground there in, in Niger, Africa, and that they were sending them up chasing this guy um, on a, on a uh, mission that they were not in country to do. So I basically, from the very start, they were not being honest with us. Mm. Um, and it wasn't just him, it was several other people and then things were being leaked to the media from AFRICOM who's running the investigation. And AFRICOM is, um, it's a combatant command over all of Africa and it's a four-star command. And so uh, originally um, SOC Africa began the investigation, but they're only a three-star command. So then AFRICOM pulled their four-star and shut down the SOC Africa command and took over the investigation and essentially investigated themselves. So no surprise when no fault was found um, at the end of the investigation with, within AFRICOM. Um, what was found was that the men on the ground were responsible for what happened to them essentially. So um, it took us six months to basically hear uh, a bunch of half truths and a couple just outright lies and not get a detailed report of what actually happened on the ground to my husband. And um, in that time period, we heard all sorts of different stories. So in the media, they were releasing names of men on the team, um, but we never heard any of the names of officials, um, any of the officers who were involved. Um, there was an ISIS video leaked in which my husband's death was shown and that spread across CBS and all platforms of social media in which I got to read comments about how my husband should have done this or that and how he was an idiot and he could have you know, saved himself instead of um, fighting for his friends. Um, so there was all sorts of just unbelievable, um, <laughs> you know, traumatic things that happened. And then I was lied to by AFRICOM. And um, at the end of it, the commander of AFRICOM went on national TV and said, this team is not indicative of what special operators do. So you can imagine the level of injustice that I had experienced at that point. It, it was, I think I just, I don't know if you'd say I snapped because that wasn't it. It was like, um, I just finally came to the point where my decision was made. It was like, okay, I may have never written a book, but I am going to just tear this whole thing wide open.
because yeah. this can't happen and they can't do this to people. And from now on out, I want to set a precedent that anybody in my position can now say, look, she did it. So I'm going to do it. And that, that will put fear in their hearts and maybe they'll be honest from now on out. Yeah, absolutely. And, uh, you know, a scorned woman is no one to reckon with. So I'm just really proud of you. And I, I feel like I just, I'm trying to relate, but I can't, I've, um, I've, I've dated a few Green Berets and, you know, someone else that I can't mention, but never to where they deployed. So I just, I don't understand um, why they would completely like disregard you in the sense of not telling you the truth as if, you know, you're not going to talk to other families, but I feel as if um, everything leaking to the media, do you feel like that amplified your, your reasoning to, to speak your truth and to get the truth? Um, I don't know what it did was watching the media leak these things where, where they would have, you know, these details about what happened on the ground, but then they couldn't get certain things right. Like, you know, discussing my husband and, and spelling his name wrong. And then saying that he deployed once before to Afghanistan when really, but you know, he, he'd never been in Africa. And I'm like, no, this is his second deployment to Africa. Um, so they get kind of important details wrong and then claiming that all four of the men were green berets when only two of the men who died were green berets. Mm -hmm. Um, and then discussions in the media about what does a red beret mean versus a green, you know, and I'm just going, okay, we're, we're starting at the base and then you're telling me, you know, the details of what happened on the ground. And then, you know, I began to see towards the end the lies. And I think it was apparent to most media and other people that AFRICOM was not being entirely honest. And so as that um, kind of came across, there were a lot of media who then were wanting to talk to the guys, talk to the family members. I had media contact me and say, hey, can you get us in touch with the team? Because I was the only widow of, well, of a Green Beret mm -hmm. from that group. The other Green Beret was not married. And so I had them coming directly to me and asking me to connect them. And that's when I kind of went, why? Why would I connect you with them when you're putting their names out there? You aren't respecting them. You're believing AFRICOM and just reporting that because you're in a hurry to be the first one to report yeah. rather than in a hurry to figure out the truth before you report. And I think that for me was key in deciding I'm not gonna trust the media I'm going to wait for AFRICOM to brief us. And then I'm going to discuss with the guys um, getting to the truth and them not speaking to media, only speaking with me. And fortunately, Green Berets are, um, you know, known for being the quiet professionals. So, and they are, they, you know, um, I don't think they would have spoken to anybody else anyway. Um, but I told them right after all the lies and, and once we realized that they were gonna be punished, I was like, you guys, you know, you're going to be held accountable. You're going to have the media coming in. They're going to want to write this. They're going to, they're going to want to write this book. Somebody always writes the book, you know, yeah. um, Black Hawk Down, you know, um, Benghazi, whatever. And I said, why don't you guys do it yourself? Why don't you let me do it? And then at least like it's someone you trust and who um, isn't automatically siding with the officers. Yeah. You know, um, yeah. And who, ex who experienced everything that went on and knows, okay, 
these are the people who I can trust and these are the people I can't trust. Yeah, um, and the people who had been lying to me from the beginning, I automatically just went, I don't trust them because their stories keep changing. Yeah, um, especially how you mentioned that they knew certain facts or details when it fit their narrative and not the latter. And, you know, you are just such a strong woman and you just wanted the truth, period. You didn't, you didn't care what all it entailed. It's just like, you know, there are, there are brave men that are, that are dead now. And the least thing that we deserve is the truth. So I just, again, I really admire you for that, but how, how did the media kind of respond once you kind of like stood your ground and you're like, you know, I'm not, not just going to give it to you like just that easily. Like you, you also need to be held accountable as well. Like, how did they yeah. handle that? Uh, not well. Um, yeah, I haven't really spoken about that. <laughs> I don't know how much I can say about it. I, yeah. I had some um, interesting conversations where I was uh, told that, you know, um, I couldn't get a book deal unless I had their help and that they would uh, help me get that. And um, these were investigative journalists and that it would be a feather in my cap if they put me on their payroll and they hired me to be a, um, I don't know, like a, what was it, a, a news contributor? And I thought I have nothing to contribute uh, that would be worth selling out the men I love. Yeah. And that my husband died for. So I'm sorry. And I was basically given the attitude that this was their story. And I said, that's interesting. I feel that it's my story. And I was told, well, you know, we're doing this out of the goodness of our hearts to help the families. And I said, that's ironic. So am I. And, uh, you know, as soon as my book has a publisher, I'll discuss it with them and get back to you and come work with you. And that conversation went on and there was pressure put on higher and higher over the course of about two years. So, um, yeah, so it culminated in some not so friendly conversations by the yeah. end. But, and, uh, and the entitlement that they felt that they had over you and over everything that had happened is, is just baffling and just so disrespectful. So I'm really sorry that that, that had happened to you. And I was really hoping for that not to happen. You know what I mean? Like, okay, here's a woman who is standing by, you know, her, her deceased husband's side and not only him, but his, his, his brothers, like that's a brotherhood. Like if you thought the military in itself is like a, a pack, like those smaller groups, once you get down to it, they're, I mean, their family, like, you know, I don't, I don't know how else to describe it with words, but it's just, it, yeah. And I'm, I'm really, really happy and proud of you for, for having that same loyalty. Um, and I really, yeah, I just admire that. But so moving forward and writing your book, how was that for you? Like, how did you continue? Like, it's just not an easy topic to just, you know, talk about. So it, I mean, to, so to put it in words mm -hmm. and I mean, I don't know. I just feel like your husband's really proud of you, you know, wherever, <laughs> wherever you think he is, I think yeah. he is really proud of you. And just, again, I'm just, 
blown away by your strength and your ability to do this. And, and you're right, you're showing other women and other people that they can do just the same. You know, you are just as worthy of getting those facts and justice and truth, not only for yourself, but for that community. Um, do you feel as if they, like the commanding has lied about things before to protect families? I've heard from a lot of people that, yeah, I, you know, obviously I, I speak to a lot of different people within the military community and a lot of um, Green Berets um, and soft community. And I mean, we all know that this has happened before and it'll happen again. Um, because when you've got people who are more interested in protecting their careers than being honest with the families, that that's going to happen. And, you know, I don't know how you keep it from happening. I, I really, I, I don't know what the solution would be because it's not an organizational thing. It's, it's an individual thing when individuals choose to protect their careers. So, you know, it's like I say over and over, my, my problem isn't with the army, you know, it's, it's not with special operations, I think, right. you know, and I've seen so many amazing um, generals and um, other officers since then who have just gone out of their way to do what they can to help these guys and to embrace our family and support us um, in the wake of what's happened and to help alleviate, you know, like the Gilmores that were rescinded, that was the work of, a, you know, an incredible general who really worked with the guys and just loved them and wanted to do the best he could for them and, and um, saw that there was an injustice. Um, so, you know, there's been a lot of really great people within the community who have seen this the same way I have and have done what they can within their purview to help. Um, so it's just, you know, th there's always people who are protected by those who are higher up the chain somewhere and figuring out where those connections are. I mean, how do you, how do you even begin to do that? But I think the shame is that you've got these guys, you know, one officer, two officers protecting their careers. And the truth is, you know, for me, from the beginning when Brian died, my thought process was, this is war, people die, this, this just happens. You know, we, we knew this could happen and it did. And I also knew my husband. So when I heard they were attacked and I was like, I know he probably died and I wonder what he did. Like, I wonder what made him, like, this is my thought because I knew my husband. It's like, somebody did, you know, somebody killed one of his friends. So he went after them. Like he, he did something because that's how Brian was. He would be like, you're fine at home. You can handle me not being there. I'm going to go take these guys out because that's just the kind of person he was. That's how Green Berets are. Yeah. Um, so for me, it wasn't, you cost my husband his life. It's you you know, this happened, yeah, they got put in a bad situation. They shouldn't have been out there. They shouldn't have been doing what they were doing. But, you know, things happen. Yeah. So let's just be honest and let's learn from it and make sure it doesn't happen again. But the minute you start lying to me and then you go the next step and you say, they're not indicative of what Green Berets do. I'm like, okay, now you've slapped me in the face and you've dishonored my husband and everyone who fought and died alongside him. So you've gone way beyond just lying to me. Yeah. You've now completely dishonored him and um, made it sound like he wasn't worthy of being a Green Beret just because he died with one on his head. So yeah, that was yeah. like crossing the line. Absolutely. Yeah. So I think that's, you know, overall, that's the issue is, you know, you've got to quit being afraid of 
people being punished because honestly in that situation no one should have been punished not the guys on the team nobody at AFRICOM none of the officers yeah things should have been changed there should have been like effective you know changes put in but nobody should have been punished but at this point yeah absolutely you've mm -hmm. lied to us you've tried to end careers um all to protect yours so yeah you shouldn't be leading men into battle if you cannot own up to what your decisions um caused yeah you know yeah. And that's just really disappointing to hear, but I'm glad that you clarified that that is an individual problem and not the organizational problem. Um, and, and, you know, I feel as if them punishing or trying to just do like paperwork, like is just supposed to make it better or like, you know, somewhat put a bandaid on that wound. But I mean, you're, I mean, your legs amputated, you, you can't, a bandaid can only do so much. So, um, so how did, sorry, how do you find your strength during this to keep going and to keep asking those questions? Like, because that, that was a personal choice to get up every day and, and fight for your, your husband's honor. So, I mean, were there days where you, it was too much for you or you had to take a break, like during this time, like, how did you take care of you while you were trying to like you know, really dive into this? I think, um, I think when you're going through something like this, there's so much trauma. It's very similar to having PTSD, PTSD. You are in shock and you're just all, all cylinders are firing and you're just reacting. So you can't stop. I wasn't taking care of myself. I was hardly sleeping. It didn't matter. I had one goal yeah. and I, I couldn't see anything but that goal. And so things were happening. I mean, the video's coming out, this is happening. And I mean, I could feel, um, gosh, there were times that I felt like I might be having a heart attack or a stroke. You know, I could feel, I could feel that stuff. But then that just turned into, I'm going to push it down and drive it, use it to drive me forward rather than lay down and quit. Yeah. Um, and I don't know if that's just how I am or if that's what happens to everybody in those kinds of situations, but I tend to channel it into, I'm going to use this to fuel um, what's, you know, what's going on um, yeah. to fuel what I want to accomplish. Um, and it seemed, I think once I'd made that decision that I was going to write the book, it wasn't something that ever crossed my mind after that point. It never crossed my mind that it wasn't going to happen. Once that decision was made, there was no stopping it at that point. Yeah. So um, after that, I mean, I can't tell you how many people told me what I wanted to do wasn't possible um that wasn't relevant because I already knew it was going to happen and I didn't care how so um I mean I was tired yeah. <laughs> I was emotional you know I'd get in my car and scream and slam on things and then I would just it's kind of like listening to rageful music and then you just push through it and, and drive you forward you know it's yeah. like 
there's mom in the minivan screaming down the road, pounding on everything. And like, yes, you know. jamming out to bring me the horizon or something. Just, yeah. And that's awesome. I also, you know, wanted to note that like, you're a mom, you channeled in that energy. Like, I mean, and that's parenting in the nutshell. It's like, you're tired, but somebody's got to do it. And here you are using that to fuel your fire. So that's, I mean, that's, that's brave. That's resilient and just something to be proud of. And I feel like you've definitely, you've, you've taken your situation and amplified it to that. So others don't have to hurt and that others can see that it is possible, you know, despite the naysayers. So I just, I'm really glad that you kept going despite, you know, the chatter or, you know, people saying this, that, and the other, um, again, just that bond that you have with your husband, that bond that you have with the brotherhood and, you know, his friends and, you know, even everyone that's still alive now, like it's also for your sons. So, Mm -hmm. you know, when someone it's just like, it's a good situational lesson for everyone when you're not getting the truth that you deserve, the justice that you deserve, you know, it's, I feel like it can be a, like a common thing to just sit back and accept it but really, I mean, who says that you're supposed to? I think there's certain things that in a society that we normalize and and especially, you know, you as a woman, you're a, a gold star widow. I mean, most people are, would think that you would just take that folded flag and and mourn peacefully. But, you know, there's, like you said, there's so much more to that story. And, you know, hopefully this, this won't occur again. And if they have the audacity to try it again, you know, you can be like, excuse me. Like you can keep them in check. Like Michelle Black is going to keep you in check. And, and it's also going to show other wives that feel like they don't have a voice or a say that, that they can speak up that, you know, yes, you've made the ultimate sacrifice. You knew what was probably going to happen going into this, but but still, you you can't just blatantly disregard what happened and trying to just point fingers. Um, I was talking to a friend the other day and, you know, it's always good to just share both sides. Most people think that there's, okay, there's her truth, his truth, and then the story. But really, like, when you point fingers, you have three pointing back at you. So, you know, there's that saying about using the knife hand, but really it's just like, if you're going to point fingers you need to also acknowledge that, you know, maybe you have something to blame um, or something at fault. So for, for command to just say that to you and disregard you in that way, obviously is not a trait or characteristic of, you know, special operations command and leadership. And that's, you know, that's a very big disappointment as well, because we expect them to be these men and women, you know, of high morals and ethics. And then, you know, this happens. It's just like, sometimes it's okay to, to call someone out for their, their shenanigans, their BS, because I mean, to an extent, someone needs to be held accountable. And when it gets that high up, it's like, there is none. And it's usually, I mean, if you want to say it's like, it's officer versus enlisted or, um, a regular army versus special operations community. Like it's not about pointing fingers. It's just about getting the truth, getting, I mean, even in like 
after action reviews. It's just like, you have to look at everything that lined up in order for that event to happen. How can you completely disregard major impactful decisions and, and parts of the story? So it's, it's just, it's hurtful in so many ways, but it's good that you demanded that truth because you of all people deserve that. You're not just, you know, you're not just a Green Beret girlfriend. You are a wife of 12 years. Like this ain't your first rodeo. You're not a fool. So I think, I think it's a really great lesson to implement to other wives and other people in like the special operations community, Delta, but also for them as well. Like leaders need to be reading your book, (laughs) but not just, not just, not just because like, you know, you're calling them out. It's just, again, so that they can learn that these are people, these aren't numbers, you know, these are men, women, and their families, their kids. How can you dehumanize that situation and just, you know, think so selfishly only considering yourself, you know, it's just, it's just not what that community is about. So, um, hopefully that is just a, an, an occasional, thing I don't want this to happen to another family to another you know operation team like but I mean that being said like when writing the book how did you feel about everyone else that was involved in the aspect of um you know you said there was a a red beret like the families of those that are also involved in your in this book like did you did you ask for them Um, like for their help? Did you want to like ask for their input? Like, was this like a kind of like a, a community kind of thing? Like you wanted to make sure that you were being respectful, but also like, also that they're comfortable that you're sharing this truth. Cause it's, you know, it wasn't just your husband in that situation. So you do that as much as you can, because a lot of times, and, and that happens with grief, you know, families are so vastly different. So I did try my best to contact everybody. Not everybody responded. Yeah. Um, yeah. Cause there, you know, I think one of the guys was a maroon beret. Um, oh, maroon. Okay. um, and then I'm not sure. I think the other one, I don't know, but the, the maroon beret, there's just, there's different, the berets just signify their jobs. So yeah. they wouldn't be called, you know, I think he was support and um, he was a support mechanic. He was actually becoming um, a green beret. The guys loved him and we're all training him up to be, uh, um, to go out soon. Yeah. So, oh, that's um, so cool. that was really, yeah. So they were all a really tight knit group. He, you know, they as well have been one of them already. Um, yeah, that's good. So they, they had actually invited, they had specifically requested he go with him, uh, with their team on this deployment because he wasn't set to, but he deployed with them before and they loved him. So they were like, we want David on this next deployment. So um, I think they're actually going to give him, um, he's going to be awarded a Green Beret um, this summer or soon. That is um, so cool. Oh, good yeah. for him. I love yeah, that. So, he definitely deserved one. So um, anyway, but yeah, so um, him, and then there was another guy, um, Jeremiah was a radio, radiological, biological and chemical warfare specialist. And I don't know much about him. He had just shown up on the team. So I think mm-hmm. he'd only been on the team for that deployment first time for like maybe a couple of weeks. So I'd never met him, but mm-hmm. um, I do know his family. Um, 
I speak to his dad, you know, somewhat often. My in my father-in-law, you know, he talks to everyone, so I yeah. hear all the reports from everyone. So, but yeah, I try to contact everybody, and I get some responses. Some people, I think, it's just hard, you know. Yeah. Revisiting a lot of that stuff is hard, so I try to keep them posted with what's going on, and I may or may not get a response. It just it depends. Yeah, but I really like that you're at least that you were like courteous enough to reach out because. Um, as I mentioned, you know, even though we are talking about you and Brian today, um, you know, there were more people involved and, and like you mentioned, people grieve differently, but what I appreciate is just that you at least considered them, um, you know, unlike how that situation and the command didn't really take into, take y'all into consideration. Here you are just righting the wrongs and trying to do better than that situation. And, and yeah, just, you know, regaining that humanity, like, Hey, we all lost someone, but I'm, I still see you as a person. I still value you. Is this okay? You know, just humanity. I feel like sometimes that can be lacking sometimes in certain situations. I think that was the hardest part about the book is um, realizing that you know, in a book, you have to, you have to choose certain things and you have to choose to leave out certain things. So when it came right down to it, having to tell some of the parents, like, I can't write every single guy's full story. I just can't. Yeah. Like I, cause I can't write a thousand page book. Um, a, I won't do them justice because I, I didn't know them as well as you do. You know what I mean? So I, I feel like I wouldn't do a good enough job. Um, and that that's a lot of pressure. And getting people to read, period, let alone like a thousand page book. I mean, mm-hmm. I love my novels and I'll pull out a thousand page book and, and that takes me a while, you know? Mm-hmm. Like I still read my Lord of the Ring in one big, you know, yes. but that still takes me a while. Um, but like, yeah getting the average person to do it they see anything bigger than say 200 pages and they start to sweat a little you know so um yeah and so this was really pushing it at 350 and I felt like I cut a lot of stuff out so I felt bad telling you know families like I can't write your kids full story like that's that's gonna have to be your job and I'm sorry um yeah but also like, I mean, I, I'm, I'm glad that, you know, like you're saying, like you apologize to them, but you're absolutely right. Like you wouldn't do it justice. And they, I mean, you're showing them that they can do it. And I think that they should, you know, if you really feel like your son deserves to be honored in that way. And, you know, there's so many lessons that you can put in a book and all you have to do is just pick it up. Like people have been there, done that they've been through it and they're leaving you the answers and, you know, advice and everything else in a book and just I mean that's how I actually learned the language I'm not um I'm a native Spanish speaker I'm an immigrant and I've just always had this big love for reading and so that's why I asked you for the physical copy of the book because like the pages even smell good yeah and just I don't know so but you're right you know like I'm just I'm just blown away again but you're showing them that they can do it that, hey, it's not up to me, great mm-hmm. idea. I could do it, but it's not giving your son or daughter that justice that they deserve. Like, you know, yeah. they know more of those details, those accomplishments and stuff. So you've, you've taken that first step and every step afterward is like, 
is, you know, on purpose, it's purposeful. So I think you're walking into that right path. And I, I think that was absolutely right of you to say that, you know, I mean, like you, you could try, but it, you know, and, and the fact that you asked for that help or, you know, for other people to like, kind of like, you know, read it, you know, let me know your thoughts. It's just, it's just, that's just powerful. Cause again, it's more than just a memoir. It's, it's just, it's, it's putting that community into a book and that's just powerful in itself. But, um, well, and that's why I always tell people like this book isn't about grief and it's not about me and Brian. Like yeah. that's, that's in there because it has to be in there. It's a means to an end. Like I have to bring you in and make you care before I rip your heart out and show you why this matters. Yeah. You know, and that's, otherwise I wouldn't have bothered with that part either. I would have just written the part of what happened on the ground and then tore apart the AFRICOM, um, you know, a redacted report. Yeah. which is, is in there. And I think those are really the most important things, but without putting in the family element, you don't see why it matters. You don't exactly. feel anything about it. And that's, you know, a lot of times that's what's missing from these books of what, what happened on the ground during a battle is you don't see why it matters. It's like, oh, we, yeah, I read that book about that awesome battle, but you don't see what happens when they come home. Yeah. You know, and you don't see why we've got issues like PTSD and suicide and, you know, and I think that was a big overwhelming lesson for me when these guys came home and I knew them before and they're these big, strong warriors and they're just, they can't make eye contact with me and they're turning red and looking away and they're sobbing and I'm like, no, like you don't apologize to me, like yeah. I'm fine we'll all be fine and this isn't your fault and you know what I mean like I'm worried about you don't worry about me you know I wasn't there I didn't watch what happened I didn't have to watch my friends die I didn't have to feel the responsibility for not bringing them home and I didn't have to come and face the families and and live with that fear of are they going to blame me are they going to you know and what could I have done to stop it and yeah. um so for me I was like there is no way I'm letting these guys apologize to me but bringing being able to bring that into the book so people see like this is what's affecting the families this is what's affecting the troops this is why the injustice of what happened to them matters yeah you know it's just like multiple levels of, of trauma and especially coming from the command, it just doesn't help that you have to lie about things. You, you can't be honest. You can't, can't even mention it. And I think pushing it down and repressing it is also a pain. Um, but yeah, that's what also gets me the most. And, um, and is also what I admire about you as a woman, there's, you know, the women behind the green berets and it's like, y'all y'all put up with a lot and you know y'all were married 12 years and probably knew each other longer and just yeah so that's hard but thank you for sharing that um may I ask you about how the boys took it and how the boys are now like with their father passing and how you want them to remember him and his legacy and everything yeah um you know that was really hard because um, that's one section in the book I still can't read. I can't read out loud. I can't even read through it really. Um, I wrote it, but that was a whole day of me sitting there with, you know, tissues and like 
just it was ugly crying um so uh, telling them was uh yeah that was bad um but now they're doing good um <laughs> so obviously my kids are the only thing that'll make me cry because it just it's yeah. too much yeah but um they're doing good now. It's been, you know, three years, three and a half years. Um, we had done, fortunately, we had taken up the, um, the thing of not getting them toys for Christmas and birthdays. We'd started doing um, vacations. Oh, nice. So, yeah. So the summer before he deployed the last time, we had actually um, gone on a Caribbean cruise and we took out like... <laughs> so funny we never drank so the kids saw us drunk together for the first time so that was you know really exciting and a good memory yeah <laughs> mom and dad drunk together you know gallivanting around the caribbean and then um we they'd been learning to swim so we got a we rented a catamaran one day and went out on with a whole group to go um how do you call it uh, snorkeling so Zeke, my oldest, he was 11 at the time, not scared of anything. Or no, he was 10 um, when we went on that trip. He jumped off the boat and took off with a group of adults to go snorkeling. We couldn't find him. And then Brian's like, oh, he's over there. And like had to go catch up with him. So they went snorkeling in the Caribbean, just the two of them, um, which was awesome. And, um, you know, saw sea turtles. And um, so that was, yeah, we had a, this whole long vacation. Then we got back and his parents flew out and we all went up to DC for two weeks and just spent two weeks, you know, roaming around the Capitol. And that was always one of Brian's favorite things, is, um, museums and monuments. And so you got to do that with the kids and they have all these great pictures of them. So I think it was amazing that from then on out, it's remember that time, you know, and, and they remember like pretty much the whole six months before he deployed, if he wasn't training, we were on vacation together. So yeah. the kids have all these very tangible memories and things where they remember his personality. They remember the things he said to them. They remember um, just really big things. So for nine and 11, you can, you can really remember a lot. And that's so important so that yeah. they, they know who he is. And it's funny because right before he died, or right after he died, um, before I even decided to write the book, I was like, oh, I'm going to write down all these memories so that the kids have these memories. So I'm going to write just our history. And so the kids can look at it and they can go, this is who we are. You know, and I always joke that it's like the Lion King, you know, remember who you are. And so it's like, okay, they'll remember who they are. They'll have yeah. all these cool mem memories of, you know, their legacy. They'll remember who their dad is. And, and cause that really will determine who they become. Yeah. Um, and so um, I was writing all that down for them. And so it's great to see them like, remember all that stuff. It's huge. And I think it's made a big difference in um, their resiliency. Yeah. Um, you know, we talk about them all the time and um, just, and I think because they were put through so much afterwards, I had to become their defender as well. So especially Ezekiel with what was going on at school, he had so many um, constant just I only talk about a little bit of it in the book, but there was probably a solid three or four months where he was literally in and out of trouble. Nobody, 
um, he was kind of viewed as a bad kid. They didn't understand autism and how to deal with it. So they didn't believe he had autism. The school yeah. just took on the attitude of he was a poorly behaved kid and they yeah. didn't even have grace as far as his dad just died. So it was just, he's a bad kid. He's a punk. He needs to, you know, so he was suspended all the time. Um, and I had an incident too with a teacher who bullied him. And I finally, there were a few times where I lost it on the district or the, the um, administration at the school and just um, put my foot down and was like, he's not in trouble until you hold your teachers accountable. accountable. My child is not in trouble. I don't care. Suspended for 10 days. He's not in trouble. He lost his dad. He can do whatever he wants. <laughs> not reasonable. I don't care, yeah. you know, and pretty much pick him up shaking and crying and pull him out of there and just tell him like, you didn't do anything wrong. Yeah. So I mean, to just reach that point as a parent where you're like, you know what, I've always held him accountable for everything. And I know he's a handful, but his dad just died. And if you can't have grace yeah. for him, then I can't have tolerance or grace for you. Yeah. So um, kind of reaching that point with him. Um, so I think showing them that early on, um, it, it created this tight bond, you know? And so now it's, we talk about their dad all the time. We moved out here by his parents so that we can in Washington state. So he can be by, the kids can be by um, Brian's mom and dad mm -hmm. and his brother. Um, and so we spend a lot of time with them. Um, and I've been teaching them to ski. Brian always skied. Mm -hmm. I always snowboarded. So I decided to take up skiing again, which I haven't done since I was a kid and teach the kids to ski. Yeah. So I've been teaching them and, and grandpa how to ski. So everybody's learned to ski this year and um, just, you know, things like that. So they're doing really well. I'm really happy to hear that. And, and I, um, I love that word. I love that name. It's my best friend's name, but um, yeah, the, I felt like the, the school wasn't really showing much of compassion or grace with everything that it had happened. And then especially, you know, not even considering the stuff that was going on in the media. Well, at least not yet, but yeah, I think with kids, I love kids. I'm, you know, far from having them far from attaining them, but just, you know, kids sometimes suffer the most and silently in ways that we don't understand. Um, and I feel like when we do understand that we, we kind of get that closer look, we, we give them humanity. Like they're, they're, they're people despite their size. And they have all of these emotions that they have every right to feel. And especially for the school to not even to take that into consideration or the teacher. Um, I mean, that's gonna, that's gonna make it worse, I think, you know what I mean? So it's not that, like you said, your child doesn't have a behavioral problem. It was just like, he has all of these emotions. He just lost his dad and he doesn't know what to do with them. And so with that curiosity, with that, that kind of time and like wanting to release that, I mean, they're going to get creative and I'm glad that you, you know, as a mom, you said that, Hey, you're not in trouble. It's not your fault. Like, but also like kind of talking to them, like that's, that's some great parenting. And I really admire that because I mean, again, no one ever wants these things to happen. No one expects or plans for them. And here you are, you know, doing the best that you can. And and I really admire the whole like vacation thing. Cause I, um, I see that with some of the guys that I dated, you know, they have other families and he's like, yeah, we are taking the kids to the beach. And, you know, I'm just like, yeah, you're about to go on a year and a half long deployment. And I see the little vacations coming up and, 
and yeah, I see the kids talking about those memories. And so I'm glad that you allow them to just speak freely about their dad. Like, I feel like some people just like, oh no, keep that to yourself or like not around other people or something like that. Just, no, it's good to just let it out. And, and you build a stronger bond relationship, friendship with that. So I'm really glad to hear that your boys are doing good and, and everything. So that's, that's just, yeah, I love kids. So I just had to ask. (laughs) Well, and you know, one thing that I always, um, because I like, I like to let other women know whether they've had kids or they don't, because you always feel like you're the least um, knowledgeable when you have kids. It's like, oh, I'm new to this and everybody else is the expert. Um, And I remember feeling that way for years and Ezekiel has autism. And when he was about five, he was uh, in school in Colorado Springs. And I sat down with a um, special ed teacher and she was younger and she looked at me and she goes, you do realize you've been raising him for five years and we've all just met him. She goes, so I don't care how many experts are in here. She goes, you're the only expert. And that really stuck with me because from then on out, anytime a teacher would try and push me or whatever, I thought, you know what? He's my child. And I may not know anything, but I know my child. Yeah. And so if this feels wrong, then you know what? It is wrong. It's wrong for him. It may not be wrong for that kid over there, but it's wrong for my kid. And that's all that matters. And normally I was a very like, go with the flow, let everybody tell me how to do things and let me know what I was doing wrong. And I just, it was a huge breakthrough for me to realize, you know what? If it's, if I'm feeling that it's not right for him, this could be the difference between him healing and him like, you know, succeeding or just going the opposite direction and totally falling to pieces. So as a parent, no matter what anybody else says, no matter what anybody else's opinion is, no matter how professional they are or what kind of an expert they are, always do what's right and what feels right in your gut for your child. That's it. Absolutely. Yeah. I can't tell you how many times I was told things like, you know, oh, he's got ADHD. He needs to be put on, um, you know, medication Mm -hmm. for it. And I know a lot of people do it and they're happy with it. But with me, my family has a history of epilepsy. And I was like, no, not going to happen because his brain is still forming. And I don't know what that's going to do. I don't know whether how that could affect him potentially down the road. And Mm -hmm. he wants to be in the military. What if they see he's been on medication and now he can't get into the military and he's a high functioning autistic kid. And there's a point that he may very well qualify to be in the military because he's like on the very far end of of the autism spectrum. And um, so I had some uh, administrations get really upset with me and it finally came down to, I mean, I could have probably worded it better, but I just I finally snapped and I was like, I will not put my child on medication to make your job easier. It's your job. Do it. Yeah. Like, I am yeah. sorry. You don't have to like me. Absolutely. And I'm, I'm really glad that, I mean, well, obviously like with a child that has autism, I really like the dynamic of the teacher parent type of like relationship and like meetings. Cause like it, I mean, yeah, you can group kids together, but sometimes you kind of want to know what's going on individually. And that way, like 
where one student struggles, one isn't speaking up on, and you can also help another student. Um, so I have ADHD. I was not medicated as a child. And I have those report cards, you know, saying like talks too much, like dances in the hallways, this, that, and the other. And as much as sometimes, <laughs> right? Like, thank you. And as much as I wished, sometimes when I got in trouble that I was like, more like the other kids, you know, I didn't have an adult, like, talk to me ever about what was going on. It was just like the same thing, like, your kids either going to have behavioral issues and, you know, have, you know, have to like, miss out on recess, or, you know, you can medicate her. And my mom was also against that. And I'm really glad that she didn't put me on that, because then there's, I'm 27 now, and I have friends and colleagues who have been medicated for that, and they just don't feel themselves. They don't like it. They don't enjoy it. It, it, it brings, I mean, you, you can be productive, but it, it's, you feel like not yourself, not your best self either. And I like that you're kind of giving that choice for your son to make whenever he's of age and cannot, can understand that. Um, but that, I again, felt okay. that it would give him the opportunity. It was a better opportunity for him to learn self-control. So we talked about it a lot and I was like, well, you know, I mean, at seven, I think seven or eight years old, I sat him down and told him he had autism. And I was like, this is what it looks like. This is what it means. This is what kids on the spectrum are like. This is what regular kids are. You get to choose every day, whether you make choices that are going to make you look autistic or make you look regular. What do you want out of life, Ezekiel? Mm -hmm. And so from every day after that, he had me telling stories kids on the autism spectrum and what kind of choices they made you know so I had to make up stories and then what all the other kids were doing and then he'd try and act normal I mean he wasn't successful most of the time but but <laughs> he he's tried. trying yeah and that's yeah. The, the effort is better than no effort but um so I guess would when your sons become of age you would let them join the military Absolutely. Yeah. I've asked them to do college first, just so they can be real adults when they join. Yeah. I think um, because I mean, yeah, you're an adult at 18, but they say that uh, especially men, their brains aren't fully formed and decision making isn't, you know, fully uh, like, um, I don't know until like 22. I just, yeah. you know, I, I think they take bigger risks. I mean, to be, to be fair, to be honest, I feel like I was still a child when I enlisted at 17. And then again, at 18, just like, I thought I knew what I was doing. I like, I am doing the best that I can. This is as much as I know, but even like my first two years of enlistment, I just, I had all this knowledge about military stuff, but just I was lacking in the other, like, you know, as a woman, as, mm -hmm. as, as a daughter, as, you know, still kind of learning my role in society, in my family and, and the like. So I see what you mean, but I, I admire your honesty about wanting and letting your, um, your sons, you know, join the military, but absolutely, you know, whether it's trade school, community college, just a little something for that intellectual and mental growth um because 18 is definitely not the same as 20 no you know what I mean <laughs> I'm like 20 22 good but yeah. like somewhere between 18 and 20 I just that's pretty yeah. young so I think for me also being like the youngest and you know the 
a, also like a daughter, like a girl, just 18 was just like, that was my ticket to freedom. But I like, I just overestimated it. And I was just like, no, I'm still a child, but I'm not going to tell my dad that. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> but yeah, no, I mean, that's good. And I feel like that would be really cool to see your son's, you know, how do I want to say it? Just I'm not, I wouldn't say like live up to your husband's legacy, but just, it'd be really cool to see what your sons do with that legacy. Like, Hey, this is how great my dad was. Like, guess what I'm going to do? Like, you know, the, and especially since you've kept communication open and honest with them um, and you've given them grace and compassion with the healing process. And it's still very early, but just, I feel like, um, like I, your husband, extraordinary dude, green beret, just yeah. Outstanding man. And I think your son's kind of like admiring him and wanting to do that. That'd be cool. But even if they didn't and they did a different route, I feel like still it's just like, it, it, it sets a really good like threshold for, for your, your children. If, you know what I mean? Like, Hey, look at what your dad did. You know, I don't, I don't, I don't care if you have autism, you are just as capable. Like, so it's really cool to see like what you and your sons will, will be up to in the years to come. But now that you've, you've put the book out, you're spending some time with the in-laws, like what are you and the family up to? Um, well, fortunately we're coming up on summer. So, you know, that's, <laughs> yeah, that's uh, go see all the family everywhere now that we're back on the West coast and, and all of that. Um, you know, the kids with school, Ezekiel is doing swimming and water polo. Isaac's wanting to get into jujitsu. So that'll probably be in the fall. Um, more skiing, of course. Right. Um, and Ezekiel wants to learn to snowboard this year. So I went and bought a new snowboard. And then um, we'll do that. So I'm very excited. Yeah. Um, I'm not a good skier. So it's been a very long year for me skiing. <laughs> oh yeah, I bet. Are y'all gonna maybe head back to Colorado? I loved skiing. I, I never snowboarded, but I loved skiing in Colorado. That was definitely one of my favorite places to go. Yeah, well, we have a mountain locally, but I would love to get back out to Colorado. So um, hopefully, I think we do, we bought passes this year and they, they let you go to other areas. And I have a cousin who lives in Colorado. So I'm thinking maybe this year we'll get a chance to go out and actually visit him and um, ski there. Um, or also down um, in Mammoth Lakes where I grew up, um, maybe go down there and do some skiing. So Ooh, that sounds really fun. Absolutely. Yeah. I would love to do that. So we'll see, you know, show my kids what it's like to ski in the sun. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Oh yeah. Cause uh, so, um, so yeah. gloomy, those clouds are very intense. Okay. Well, Michelle, thank you so much for coming on. Is there anything else that you wanted to, to leave us with before we go? Um, you know, I, more than anything, I think just for women don't, you know, I feel like we so many times, and I know I kind of stated this with Zeke, where we we let people tell us what we can and can't do, what, what you know, the experts or whatever. And I can't tell you how many people told me I couldn't do exactly what I just did. Yeah. So do exactly what you want. You only need one person who believes in you, and that's you. So, you know, once you make up your mind to do something, don't let anybody tell you you can't, because you can do whatever you want. 
Um, and I tell everybody that all the time, if they're like, oh, you know, you shouldn't do that. You shouldn't do that. I'm like, I do what I want. So, <laughs> you know, yeah, girl, <laughs> you know, like, I don't mean that mean, but you know, like, no, I love it. And I mean, you're right. And I, I mean, I really hope that both of your sons have better teachers than that, but yeah, I have had teachers tell me that you're not going to pass college algebra and guess who did guess who has two yeah. college degrees. <laughs> mm-hmm. You know, I'm still a ding dong, but I passed. So you're right. You know, there's going to be those naysayers, but you know, you're, I feel like you're just neglecting yourself if you don't at least try. So I'm just so proud of you and just grateful to have. I had, you know, um, news executives telling me I couldn't do what I just did. And I had one of the top agents, book agents in the world telling me that I couldn't make a book like this and that I should hand my material off to somebody else. And I mean, I had so many people tell me I couldn't do what I wanted to do. So you'll hear no a thousand times. And um, the only person that matters is you. If you quit on yourself, that's the only way you're going to fail. So yeah. Absolutely. I'm just so grateful to have come across you and be introduced to you. Like you, like I said, I'm like fangirling over you. You're just so strong and you're truthful about it. And yeah, I just really appreciate just coming across you and being acquaintances. So thank you so much, Michelle, for sharing everything, sharing those hard truths and, and being honest with us. And just, I mean, you're still, you're glowing, like you've done the work you've, you've sought out justice and, and yeah, you're making your sons and your husband proud. So just, yeah, thank you so much for coming on and sharing this with us. Like, I know it's, it's hard, but I really appreciate you. And I know the audience will too. Well, thank you so much. I'm, you know, obviously very, very excited to have gotten to come on and to meet you and um, yeah very happy to have discovered your podcast as well. Yeah, thank you. Yeah, I know it's a little out there, but just, yeah, I think we need to highlight, you know, strong, resilient women, men. And, you know, I would love to have you back on maybe for some other topics. I feel like you as a mother, as a survivor can definitely have like so many more novel things to share that, you know, men and women alike can really um, benefit from. So yeah, thank you again for coming on and for the audience sacrifice by michelle black is on amazon it's on yeah it's on everything and if you're an audible person which i don't knock i love the audibles too when i'm cleaning and stuff so there's audible there is you know kindle there is everything you want and it's everywhere so you know books a million and um barnes and noble and target walmart whatever you want heck yeah girl uh, awesome. Well, be sure to check out her book, the audio book as well. And if people want to get in touch with you, can they, or maybe through the pod? Yeah, absolutely. I'm on, you know, all social media. So, you know, I've got an author page on Facebook. I've got an Instagram page at Michelle Black 71. Um, and it's the same on, you know, Twitter and I'm trying to do TikTok. It's kind of pathetic right now, but I'm learning. <laughs> hey, I feel that it's just, it's all about having fun girl. And I mean, you're doing it. So I'm very proud of you still. So um, resilient and rowdy gang. If you want to hit up Michelle, hit her up. All the links will be put down below. And yeah, thank you again for joining us, Michelle. You have a great day. Absolutely. Thank you. You too. Right, bye. <laughs> bye.